underneath all that I'm doing is hope, is I'm bringing hope to people. That's my, my ultimate goal too. And I've had many, many of, uh, dark days and tough times. I'm Ren McDonald, and this is The Hope Initiative, a show dedicated to learning about humans on planet Earth, where I speak with everyday people to find moments of success and struggle in their life to help inspire hope in yours. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 3 of The Hope Initiative. I'm currently recording this quite late at night on Thursday and I'm still hoping to release it tonight to keep my initial promise to myself and to all of you listening of an episode a week. So thank you for your patience. This week on the podcast, I speak to my very first stranger. Ooh! Uh, Well, kind of a stranger. We've never met in person, but my guest is someone who was a fellow student of the podcast fellowship the course in which I learned to do all of this palaver, which I mentioned in episode one. She is a Canadian mother of three, and her podcast that she has created is called Happy, Healthy, Whole, Adoptive Parenting. Susie Q, as she's affectionately known, whilst helping me to create the Hope Initiative on the course, suggested a few months ago that she might be a good guest on my podcast, as she's been through quite a lot in her life. I didn't know much about her, But as you'll soon see, this conversation is my longest so far and is truly inspiring. My opening question to Susie was a rather open-ended one. In her first episode of her own podcast, she said, and I quote, We can't assume that because somebody looks happy that they are, or that because somebody seems well-rounded that they've got nothing going on. I asked her how she came to think that way, what she had been through, and as you'll soon hear, it took us to a pretty cool place. I hope you enjoy, and thanks as always for listening. I wanted to speak about something in your first episode. Now, I'm going to read this directly because it's yeah a quote from that episode because it stuck with me um, when I listened to it at the time. And you say, we can't assume that because somebody looks happy that they are or that because somebody seems well-rounded that they've got nothing going on. Now, I feel like they're quite profound words um, and something that's sort of good to keep in mind when dealing with anybody, any walk of life, whether it's, you know, an adopted child, a parent, but I want you to tell me a little bit about your life and sort of give you some freedom here to talk on this open-ended question, to take it wherever you want to go, because I feel like that statement, not everyone has that, you know, point of view. And I guess I want to know how you came to, to think that way and, Maybe there's, you know, you'd like to start from when you were a child. Um, you know, maybe what, what was your first memory when you were a child? Oh, buddy, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's only quarter past 11 a.m. here in Australia. So I went to bed at about, went to sleep at 2 a.m. this morning. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, okay, first of all, I I came to that conclusion initially based on personal experience. People, my, either my own experience for my own feelings and people making assumptions about me and seeing the disconnect. Like, how could they think that 
I was feeling that or that I meant that. And then from, I did a lot of self-reflection on, on, in that area of how we misinterpret one another and how we assume that somebody is, is feeling one way or doing, you know, something to us. And then with my own realizations about how I was wrong most of the time or how they were wrong in judging me, I started to investigate, not even consciously, it, it just became a curious thing for me. So then I started seeing others and talking to others and kind of picking apart different scenarios and situations where that was the case, where people made assumptions and were wrong. And right. so it, it, it started with me and then self-reflecting. What was the moment that you got to that was like, hey, just because someone says they're okay doesn't mean they are. Like, I should push past that. I don't know that I have a distinctive answer. I, I think, so I, from, so I was adopted. I won't get into all the background with adoption, but adoption is trauma for a child. It changes you on the nervous system level. When you don't have that bonding, that initial bonding, when, when that separation is, is from your mother, where you grew and were nurtured for nine, we, uh, nine months, when that is severed and you're passed off to somebody else, that creates trauma. So that affects our nervous system. Then it was three months before I was adopted. So I was passed around. I was in a home and then I was hospitalized. So I, for, for that length of time, I had no nurturing, no real bonding nurturing so that again that changes a person so with that initial trauma as any trauma it changes a person it changes their worldview it changes everything so as i was raised i was abused and on the outside here's a good one for assumption on the outside my parents had great jobs you know, they seem to be good people. We had a, an upstanding family in the community. I'm not talking about doing social events, but I mean, you know, we had a house on the lake. We went on holidays. Everybody could assume that I had a great life. But what went on behind closed doors, not so much. Yes, there were happy times, but there were more bad times and happy. So there you go. There's an assumption there. So to, to go back to kind of the lifespan, as an adopted person who didn't have that initial bonding, something in me had to change. And what that is, it, it becomes fight or flight. It becomes a matter of, I don't feel safe in this world, so I need to self-protect in any way that I can. And I think that's where it started, where I was able to, it's the, only, it's the only reasonable thing that I have been able to come up with because I've been almost broke and in poverty. I've been married and divorced with three kids and made $9,000 the prior year when I was married. And I expected to keep my three kids, mortgage on my house, a vehicle with a, with a, uh, a payment, buy groceries and everything else. And I did it. I somehow managed to do it. Wow. So the only thing I can attest to that is from those early days of 
having, I've always been in fight or flight, always been in self-protective mode where it's become instinctual for me to just, you know, kind of invisibly stiffen up and go, okay, if my own mother can't love me because she gave me away and my family can't love me, then there must be something terribly wrong with me. I never felt good enough. Everything I did was wrong. Nothing I did was good enough. If I did do it, I shouldn't have done it. If I didn't do it, I should have done it. I had five people in the house telling me, you know, conflicting things about what I should or should have. So it was just like, it was just a no win for me. I was blamed for everything. So it got to the point where it was like, well, screw it. If I'm going to get blamed for it and I'm not doing it, I might as well start doing shit, you know? And so I don't know if I've always been a rebel, but at some point the rebel came out in me and I really didn't do bad things. And there's a lot of confusion for me even still, because I still don't know why they gave me back. I still don't know. There's just a lot of confusion uh, around that for me because I will to this day maintain that I was a good kid. In fact, one of my closest friends back home, obviously I live uh, across the country from where I grew up. Um, To this day, when I go back home every year, she says something about it every time. She was friends with me when I when that all happened. We're still friends today. I have a few friends. And every time she says, well, I don't know. I still don't understand what happened. I don't understand what you did for that to happen. And this past year, she said to me, I got the answer. She said, I got the answer. I know why they did that to you. And I said, oh, what's that? And she said, I got to thinking, Suzanne must have finally stood up for herself. And that's why they gave you back. And I said, well, that wasn't the case to my, to my knowledge, but, but it was, you know what I mean? It was just kind of trying to make fun of it now. So Cindy said to you, I think last year when you went back home, she thought about what it was and that it was that you stood up for yourself and that's possibly why they gave you away that sort of suggests to me that you obviously needed to stand up for yourself and that there were things going on maybe you were being mistreated or or something like that what was going on oh i was just there i had a brother who also was adopted he was the golden child he could do no wrong I was just there kind of taking up space. Nobody really paid me any attention. The worst was my Nana. So my Nana and my grandpa lived downstairs. We had a a big, big house and they, not mansion, but they had a whole suite downstairs. My grandfather, I adored him. And he was, to me, he was my savior. He would step in and protect me. And I can't really tell you what that looks like because I don't know. I just, it feels, I feel the protection that he gave to me. I don't recall. I only recall one time where he verbally stood up for me and told his wife, my Nana, that she's acting more of a child than I was. She abused me terribly. I I got it from all ends, all of them, but she abused me terribly more so when my parents weren't home 
And when I tried to tell them and ask them for help or tell them what happened, uh, they didn't listen. It just, the, the abuse never stopped. I remember she would have people over. Where my bedroom was, there was uh, an intake vent. So I used to lay on my floor and look through the intake vent at what I could see was the kitchen. And I used to listen to her telling all of these, to me, strangers, what a useless waste of skin I was and how, you know, I mean, I won't get into all of it. And I, that's all I ever heard was what a rotten, horrible, stupid piece of crap I was. And I heard it again and again, and she can't do anything right. And we tried to, and she's just, in my mind the whole time, I, I could never understand what was wrong with me. I never understood it because I like, you know, I'm very self-aware and I think for the most part, I've, I've always been not to the degree that I am now, but I've always been able to admit my wrongs is what I'm saying. If right. I screwed up, I'm not going to lie my way out of it. I'm going to say as painful as it is, I did that. Right. That's, that's not what's happening right now. I'm not denying, I'm not saying that I was a good kid when I wasn't. I really was. And for the life of me, I could not understand what was so wrong with me that they hated me so much. So it was all a blur. It sort of gives me this idea because my parents are divorced, but both happily remarried and are still good friends. So when I say I'm the eldest of seven kids to people, it's an amalgamation of, you know, four parents. But I guess my idea of adoption when I was growing up is that, oh, I guess they're adopted. So it must be a loving environment. You know, the parents must be these loving people who, who have opened their home to this orphan, essentially, as bad as that sounds now to say out loud and to say someone in your position but what would be, obviously you've lived it. What's your, your message to, to people maybe looking to adopt a child who, you know, I know it's your line of work now, but what would be the reasons to do it, sort of the right reasons above anything else? Well, don't go into it with the saviorism attitude because that bleeds onto the kid and then the kid feels like they have to grow up owing you something and they live with guilt and shame if they have any thoughts of their biology, their biological mother, which is natural. They're going to think about their biological family. What happens is if you go into it with the mindset that I'm saving a child or, or with the other mindset, which is I'm entitled to somebody else's child, then that mindset bleeds over onto the kids, causing them great, like I said, guilt and shame. It makes them not trust themselves. It, there's too much incongruency in the parenting. And then the child, the ch an adopted child has very much mixed emotions. They can feel happy and sad almost consecutively, but not know why, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a saviorist parent, who I saved you and why aren't you grateful after all I've done for you? The child is very, gets very confused because underneath that, they feel very, it's conflicting because they're feeling something, but they don't know what, which is the biology side. 
and then they're being told that they're supposed to feel this way, but they don't, but they don't know why. Like, it, it makes sense to me because I under, does that make sense to you? I can see it. Yeah. I mean, you've got a child who's learning about the world and here's their parent, you know, a, a figure for them who's helping raise them for sure. I can 100% see how that would be. You know, I consider myself extremely lucky to live the life that I've lived and grown up in. Um, but I've had moments of upset as a child and wanting to leave one of my parents' house because they were fighting and threatening to go and live at the other set of parents. Uh, you know, I had that option at least, but I look back on that now and think, you know, I am so lucky. So yeah, no, it, it does make sense. So you say that would be a thing to not do, not be a, what, 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 what did you term it? The saviorist? The saviorist. So, saviorist. so like you said earlier, saving the orphan, Right. We're not orphans. We're just sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. But I'm glad you brought that up because that's yeah. a big that's adoption propaganda. Okay, what what is? Can you talk about that a little bit? Adoption propaganda is a lot of BS. It's adoption is an industry. It's a double digit billion dollar industry. Wow. Right. You're buying a kid. Let's be honest. As yeah. long as there's supply and need supply and demand there's it's a big business so adoptive uh, a lot of agencies will do and say whatever they can to give the impression that you are saving a lowly child that you that adoptive parents are saviors for saving this lowly child that adoption is beautiful and what it's a beautiful thing and it's not it can be but adoption begins with loss the child loses its mother the biological mother loses a child period this child who has no say in the matter is being taken from where its safety began its nurturing its safety it it knows the smell of its mother and the and the it, it can recognize its mother in every sensual form the minute it's born and that's gone in, a, in an instant that's gone and given to another family this child that's remember i said earlier that's trauma for that child so this child from birth is in instant fight or flight mode and they've had no choice in the matter they should be with their mother, but they've been passed off. Other people have made this decision for this child. And now this child has to learn how to navigate life with all of these complex emotions that I described earlier. And people telling you, you shouldn't feel like that. You should be grateful. Look at the home you have. Look at the life you Look what we've done for you. Right. Whereas what they really need based on what you've told me is their mother they've separated from that it's just almost a primal instinct those those feelings and yeah that can't essentially be replicated so what then i would still say that and i'm sure you obviously in the line of work you do adoption is still something that is needed despite the fact that it's a billion dollar industry and i don't i'm not sure if we need to get into that but what's the best thing for 
a couple parents, a single person to do if they're looking to adopt? What would be the right approach, the right mentality to take into adopting a child? Exactly, exactly what I do currently do work-wise is clean up your own past. Okay. By far, number one, clean up your own past. Here's the thing. People think they can talk to a couple of adopted people and go, oh, oh yeah, I get it. Or they can read a few books or do a little bit of self-help or go to a seminar or the adoption agencies have, um, you know, 10 hour courses to take to learn about adoption trauma. I don't care how much you learn. You are wired a certain way. And until you undo your old wiring, you can read all the books you want. You can listen to people talk all you want, but you're not going to know how to deal with a situation when it arises with your adopted child and deal with them the way that they need you to deal with them as long as you're still wired through your own past pains and dysfunctions and trauma. It just, it can't happen. You cannot be who you're not, right? And so what you need is to diffuse your own triggers, find out what they are. That's what I do is among a lot of things, but help them find what their current triggers are because kids will trigger your triggers. And then what we do is we recreate the cycle and we lash out at our kid for making us angry and our kid is bad. When in fact, all that is, is the kid is remind, reminding you that you have an unhealed wound that needs tending to. Right. So you help prepare the parents to not essentially put their own past misemotion and anguish on the child. A hundred percent. And in doing that, then you're open. Then you can start doing the work on what does an adopted child need. They need you know this and and talking to other adopted kids because when you get rid of your your biases when you get rid of your own cognitive dissonance and all of that then you're open to hearing what needs to be said i could look at all that you've told me from your earlier life and think it would be very easy for someone and there's probably many people out there who just essentially become a victim to all the things in life and go effect, which you could understand, you know, if they've been mistreated like that and, and these things have happened to them in their life. But I want to start with you were given away at the age of 15. What happened then? And was it a sudden thing for you or was it a build up? Was it a build up with the family that led to you? being given away do you know something i don't have the answers the only thing i can tell you honestly that part of my life is is in chunks it's it's literally in chunks all i can remember is i had a couple of friends who were adopted we never really talked about it it wasn't a thing that we talked about but my one friend she was with with the graces of her adoptive parents on the hunt to go find her her biological mom. And she was over at my house and we were talking about it. Now my dad was working midnight, so he was sleeping. My Nana, Gwen, was telling the two of us. And I was very 
supportive. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. Wow. You know, but I never had any thoughts about it whatsoever for myself. I just was encouraging her and going along, you know. Well, Gwen left. And the next thing, my dad got up for his shift work. He was a policeman. And Nana decides to tell my dad that I, in fact, am the one looking to go find my biological mother. Well, my dad lost it. Absolutely lost it. He slammed his fist down and he said, I will spend every goddamn nickel I earn to prevent you from ever finding your biological mother. So that was another sign to me that, that this topic is a not, it, well, I, it, this had nothing to do with me. She just, Nana just blamed me for something that was just a conversation that happened. But with that response from my dad, it was reassurance that that was a topic that one more thing I had to stuff further and further and further down and never approach again. So that's that. Wow. I don't know now the stages in between that. I don't know. I honestly don't remember. All I know is I was told that I'm going to be moving to Windsor. I don't even remember who told me. I don't remember who told me. And I think I told some people at school, like my friends, because now I'm in high school. And I might have even been in high, I might have been in grade nine in high school when the whole, that instance happened. I don't remember. But so now I'm in high school. Obviously, I told a few friends, but I don't even remember packing. I don't remember how I got to Windsor. I don't remember who took me. All I remember is going into a group home and being scared shitless because there's all of these, what I thought were, uh, what do we call rebel teenagers? Like, I'm thinking I'm this good kid and I'm going in delinquents. That's what you'd call them if you're on the news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, what the, like, I'm in this home with all these delinquents. What? It, it was just a blur. It was just a blur. I, I, like I said, I remember nothing. I don't know how I got there. I don't know who told me. I remember I had a social worker, but yeah. So I went to the home. The home was actually good. They were not delinquents. They were very much like me, you know, wrongfully charged, right. you know, good, good people. From there, I went from foster home to foster home, didn't work out went back to the group home, finally found a foster home that I melded it with. And then when I finally felt comfortable there, and there was some tough times, but I ended up having a really good time. It was a break from my family. And I ended up, we had a lot of fun there. So almost like a, a tribe of delinquents, if we were to coin a term. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did it, did it get worse than that? How, what happened? you were given away by your adoptive family at the age of 15. How did it get worse from there though, from that point, if it did? Yes, it did. That's when it got worse. So yes, if things couldn't get worse. Uh, so I was at this home where I blended well and we had like really, really just beautiful people, had a really good time. There happened to be another foster child, her name. So I was always called Suzanne as a child. Her name was Susie. And 
thank God, because I was very much a victim. I was very much in my head. What I, what I expressed earlier when you and I spoke was the mantras that I had. That's what I asked myself all the time. And, and that kind of kept my mood down. Susie was very bubbly and very bouncy and very, and she was just a pleasure to be around. But I noticed that the bubbly and the bouncy got all the attention. And I'm actually only realizing that right now. She got all the attention because people wanted to be around that where I didn't get any attention, which is exactly what I needed. I needed somebody to care about me. Right. And I was so mired in what's wrong with me. And gosh, even they don't like me. Anyway, so it was, it was a good time. So the foster home that I was staying at was my final foster home. That's the one that I stayed at for the rest of my time in foster care. And they were going away. And while they did take us now and again, I don't remember where they were going, but this particular time they couldn't take us. So we had to go back to the, Susie and I had to go back to the group home for the duration of the time that they were away. And then we would go back and finish living with them. Now, this group home is a group home I initially went to when my family, my adoptive parents, sent me back. And again, you know, we were still having fun and doing whatever until one Sunday morning in April, one of the care workers, one of the case workers, woke me up very early in the morning to tell me that my brother was killed in a car crash the night before. Now, this is the brother that I grew up with, who I call my, my real brother because I grew up with him. So this is my adoptive family I'm talking about now. Wow. It was devastating. It was just like, you know, it, yeah. So fast forward, go home. I, I we, we did the funeral and, and all of that, went back to the foster home. After my brother died is when my fa family asked me to come back. And I said, no, I wanted to finish out the school year there at least. And I was having way too much fun. And I did end up going back. But I do know in my heart of hearts, the only reason they asked me back is because my brother wasn't there anymore. I, don't, I do not believe that if he was still alive, that I would have ever got out of the system. Well, I would have at 18, I would have aged out. But so I did go back just like over 17 years old. I went back, fast forward a little bit of time to a point where my grandmother said, you know, it's just too damn bad. The best one in the family had to die. So that was about the final point where I was broken. That's a disgusting thing to say to anybody. Yeah. I understand being broken. My God. Well, I can understand it. It's horrible. She actually didn't actually say it to my face. She actually said it to, once again, to somebody else who told me. And it was actually worse than if she had just said it to my face. So then... Well, saying people, it to your face would take guts, right? Saying it to your face would take guts, which by the sounds of it, she didn't have. Ooh, good one. Yeah. You're just saying things behind your back, quite covert. Yeah. Yeah. 
So please tell me, I know we might come to it. Please tell me you got out of there sometime soon and didn't have much contact with that lady. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's, here's the deal. So 17, I was back home. 17, I got kicked out again. (laughs) So so from 17 years. I'm glad you can laugh at it now. Yeah. 17, I, I found, I've been on my own since I was 17 years old. And then I can't, what year was that? It wasn't too much later, maybe a couple years. And she, she, Nana died. Right. And I didn't, I don't think I cried. And okay. So 17, since 17, you've been on, on your own. And did things start to improve from that point when it was, you sort of were just dependent on yourself? Like what was life like moving forward from there? It was good. A lot of lonely times, a lot of those complex issues that I spoke of earlier a few times, they kept creeping up, but I only actually understood those complex feelings like two years ago. All these years, I had no idea about adoption trauma, about what was really driving my behavior. So that trauma reinforced by bad parenting by being abused and ridiculed and and neglected and all of that, it just made that primal wound even worse. So I didn't know any of this. So all my life, I was always questioned, what's wrong with me? And I always, always felt empty. No matter how full I should have been or how rich my life was, I always had an emptiness that I could not figure out until I learned about all of this. Now, I still had to go and do inner healing to heal that emptiness. But I, I had some serious kind of strength that I've, I, I don't know how else to explain it, but I was very much a victim. I very much played the what's wrong with me and why me and everything bad has to happen to me. I very much did that. But on the other side of that, I refused to go down. I had some kind of tenacity or something where I refused to be beat. What was the, the turning point two years ago that, that changed it? Like, was there a light bulb moment or a pivotal moment? It might have happened before that two years. But do you ever reflect back now and, and think of a, of a time that, really changed it because you seem like such a positive woman despite all of this and your whole line of work revolves around helping others so that they essentially so they essentially don't force what happened to you on an adopted child two years ago has more to do with deciding to go into the adoption arena than it did anything else i've always been intrigued by self-help And because I always wanted to know what was wrong with me, what was so wrong with me that, right? So I read and read and read self-help for 10 years and I went to Tony Robbins and I did all the work and yet nothing was changing or very, very small increments. I got it. I understood it. I knew better, but I couldn't do better. And it was so curious to me, how could I know all of this? How could I read the same thing in every book and nothing's changing? So again, what is wrong with me? 
So that desire to figure that out is what started the whole, this whole journey for me to begin with. And that was, that was late thirties, I believe in my late thirties, I started this self-help journey, uh, self-discovery, whatever you want to call it. Then it started. So yeah. So the adoption piece, when I decided to go into the adoption arena, one, because I know what it feels like to be an adopted child. I know what the studies show four times adopted children are four times more likely to commit suicide because we're misunderstood. We're, I, I won't get into all of that, but because of our inner feelings of unworthiness, abandonment issues, fears, safety concerns and safety issues. Like I thought, I know this, I know this. And the more research I did, that's when I really started to understand that my feelings, thus myself, were normal. There really wasn't anything wrong with me, that there was a reason that I was feeling all of these things. So as a parent of three kids, part of that being a single parent, I want, I know what I did wrong, and I know why I did it wrong. I could tell you exactly what I was thinking when I did certain things, and it all stems from my past. So there's that aspect to help adoptive parents, to give them hope that things do not have to be as complicated as we make them in our heads to be. And two, from the adopted child perspective, I can help them, guide them to what the adopted child really needs. So I literally am coming at it from, from all perspectives. Yeah. Okay, so on the subject then of learning, what would you like to be taught in schools? You know, here we are, we're doing a podcast course now. Now, obviously, back in school for you probably wasn't a thing. Podcasts definitely weren't a thing. They weren't a thing for me. I I was lucky I went to a high school where they had music production and there was a big sports program and I didn't know what I wanted to do at school. But what would you like to be taught in school now? knowing what you know, 52 years of age. Mindset, that we have control over our mind and that we get to decide what, we, what works for us. We don't need permission to do anything. We decide what's good for us. So mindset to be in control of our own, dare I say, destiny, right? mindset to understand that people don't do things to us. They do things for themselves. So when somebody is horrible to you, it's not about you. It's about what they're gaining from what they're doing, whether it be a feeling, a possession, whatever it is. But when we're not in a mindset where we can snap back to what we know to be true, our true self, then we get caught up in wanting to fit in and to be like everybody else. So I would like to see mindset taught, compassion. I would like there to to be all that goes along with people accepting who they are with what they've got, with being whole, feeling whole. Of course, there should be other things too, but that's my, like finances and stuff. But my kids have given me shit for not teaching them about finances. But <laughs> it, 
you know, in my, in my shtick, it's more about being whole and knowing that we, and I could say this from personal experience without knowing anything about it. Somehow I managed to overcome all of these obstacles and it had to do with my mindset. I don't know how I did it, but I did. And that's what needs to be taught that no matter what you go through, no matter what somebody says to you or does to you, you have the power and, the, and, and kind of a responsibility to make a decision in that moment. How do I want to, to look at that? And how will I react to it? Brilliantly said. Well done. Who or what are some of the inspirational people or things in your life that help drive you? You mentioned you have this inner thing, but has there ever been someone you looked at when you were 10, when you were 20 years old, when you were 50, that's like, that's a good example. That person has set a good example for me in my life and they help motivate you. There's been a lot. Okay, I want to mention two people and I don't want to forget. So I'm going to say Oprah and Seth. Cool. Seth Godin, I'll start with because even though it was only recently, so again, remember when I said about my dad slamming his fist down? Yeah. He always, my dad always wanted me to conform. And he would say very, very strongly, you know, to conform, to stop. Be Seth Godin, on the other hand, he says, go make a ruckus. That's what I've always wanted to be told. Go make a ruckus. So it's Seth Godin who says, Stop doing what everybody's telling you to do and go do, find your people, the people you want to speak to and speak to them. Not, don't scream at everybody else. He's the one who is saying, you don't need permission. If somebody, if you want to do something and somebody won't let you be on their podcast or somebody won't let you be in their book, then create your own. Don't wait for other people to choose you. And that's what I've always wanted to be told. I've always waited for someone to pick me. And Seth Godin is telling me, you're enough. Pick yourself. That's fabulous. And it's funny you mentioned that because something that's always been said to me in life, I don't know if it's an Australian thing or if it's said all around the world, but it's like, hey, from an older person to me as a younger person, hey, Rin, you staying out of trouble? And my smart ass answer has always been, of course not. Like, no, I'm not staying out of trouble. You know, I'm getting in trouble. And it's interesting. Seth says, yeah, go make a ruckus. It's like that mentality is like, hey, I can do anything. I can take on anything. I have, to, I have to interject. Totally. I have a really, really great sense of humor. Not exactly sure how or where that came from. Sure. But People say to me at my age exactly what they, you just said they say to you, and I respond exactly the same way. <laughs> no, of course I'm not staying out of trouble. Why would I? Right. You know? That's too boring. Right? It's, it's boring. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, there you go. I um, hope I'm getting into trouble when I'm your age. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely love it. So you mentioned Seth. Oprah was the other person. How does she right. inspire you? How did she inspire you? 
It sounds so cliche because some at some point it's like, oh God, another person saying Oprah inspired her. I gotta tell you, it's true. Everybody Every gets a car. Everybody gets a car. So. <laughs> you get a car. You get a car. <laughs> you get healed, and you get healed. I've been watching Oprah since she started, and I was that was in the eighties, and I was working. It was through Oprah Winfrey's show was the very first time because of the guests that she had on was the very first time that I can remember feeling, Oh, somebody else feels like me. And I'm not talking about adopted people. I mean, I've had some pretty bizarre negative thinking. I've had, I've, I've, I've had some pretty bizarre inner feelings and, and all of that. And to have people on the Oprah show say out loud exactly what I was thinking or that I felt that too, or that I experienced that too. I always thought I was the only one watching Oprah Winfrey and having those guests on allowed me a bit of peace knowing that it's not just me who feels this way. That's beautiful. That's lovely. Yeah. What is your definition of success? when somebody follows their heart, literally follows their instinct, follows their heart and stops doing what everybody thinks they should do. Rock solid. I like it. Don't listen to the doubters, the haters. Do you consider yourself successful? <laughs> if I live by what I just said, then yes. <laughs> but sometimes Good. I don't. Sometimes yeah. Sometimes I live by other, you know, means and I, you know, it's really, that's a really hard question for me because people have told me, so this just shows you that there are some inner struggles that I'm not aware of until they are presented. People have told me in their eyes, I'm a success because I've done this and this and I've overcome this obstacle and this and done all of these things but I don't see it. I don't see it like they see it. I see it as survival. I don't know. I just had to do it. it it's not a big feat for me. So if that makes sense, um, I, I, yeah, I think it does. I, not to cut you off, but I think, and that's why I asked the question. I think everyone has a different definition of success. Um, when you grow up, well, my, my point of view growing up, you know, success is lots of money, um, having fancy things. You know, it's what you see on TV. It's what is pushed in front of your face through, I guess, corporate marketing. That's why I asked the question and I really like your answer. But I guess, yeah, it, it's going to be different for each person, right? And then whether they consider themselves a success or not is, is always, I think, an interesting thing to ask. Right. And, you know... After all of that explanation, I'm going to have to say, yes, I do consider myself successful because of where I could have been, the person I could have turned out to be. But, you know, I kind of don't mind myself. <laughs> all right, I'm going to finish on a question which I mentioned in my trailer. If you've listened, you might have heard. I think you have listened to my trailer. But the question is, what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? 
trust yourself, calm down, and love you. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to, to add before we go? Your podcast is the Hope Initiative, and your deal and my deal is very much the same. It's, it's providing hope for people who feel like things are hopeless. And nothing is ever hopeless. And I think that if people could or would trust and, and, and stay with whatever feelings that they're feeling, just stay with them long enough to break through to the other side. Just trust that there is another side and that nothing is as bad as it seems. And on the other side of what seems hopeless, is tremendous freedom and and lessons and growth which makes people really good people as always i had so much fun recording this episode with Susie. slightly less fun editing it at 11 30 at night but that's a massive first world problem that i just need to box off myself if you want to reach out to Susie, all her details are in the show notes as per If you want to get in touch with me, likewise, and until next week, all the very best.